We bless you, Mary, for what you're going to say today. We thank you, Lord, for the words that you've already given her. We pray open ears for us to hear what she says and take it to our heart to change what we need to change and walk into God even more. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Ta-da. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a question to begin with. First of all, hello. Hiya. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Yay, Rob. Praise God. Anyway, now, (laughs) I want to ask you a question. When people ask you, when, when you're doing something and they see you either praying or praising or you say, well, thank you, Jesus, do, they, do people ever ask you, well, are you religious or are you spiritual? How do you answer that? How do you answer that? Do you say, well, 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 well I'm not religious. Um, I am spiritual. Well, what does that mean? The scripture I want to use today, the title of my message is True Spirituality, okay? And the scripture that I want to use today is from James chapter 1, and it says this. If someone believes that they have a relationship with God but fails to guard his words, then his heart is drifting away and his religion is shallow and empty. True spirituality that is pure in the eyes of Our Father God is to make a difference in the lives of the orphans and widows in their troubles and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. Now, that's a mouthful. Well, how do we apply that? I I remember one time Ian was speaking about someone that he knew who declared that he didn't want any of that spiritual religious stuff. But he ran a club for teenagers And he ran another one for older people. And I gave this verse to Ian to show the man that he was being spiritual. And the guy was absolutely amazed to find out that God approved of that. Just working with teenagers and older people, that's true spirituality. Now those verses in James, that's a two-part scripture. We make a difference in human lives. And secondly, we refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. Now, over the last couple of months, we've heard both Julie and Florence talking about keeping the weeds out of our lives. And in this passage from James, we see four areas where we need to stand guard against the weeds that are growing in our patch. Number one, guarding our words. Number two, making a difference for orphans. Number three, helping the widows. And number four, refusing the world's values. So there's four things there that we have to look at. And I want to look at each one of these things in turn. The first one is guarding our words. (laughs) My dad used to say silly stuff to us all the time. And when we asked him what he meant, he would say, Oh, I don't know. I had my tongue wrapped around my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying. (laughs) It's like, okay, dad, thank you. (laughs) And we all know people who have no filters on their speech. Whatever comes up, comes out. It's like they have disengaged their brains before their jaws start flapping. And that reminds me a lot of politicians, huh? In Proverbs 18.21, it says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it will eat the fruit thereof. And that's the King James Version. And this is how it's rendered in the Passion Version. Your words are so powerful that they will kill or give life. And the talkative person will reap the consequences. 
Okay. So first of all, who will our words affect the most? Ourselves. The scripture just said so. We will reap the consequences of whatever we speak out into the universe. If we speak out of fear, we'll reap the boogeyman. In Job chapter 3, he says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. So we will reap the consequences of speaking out in fear. But if we speak out of faith, we'll reap the benefit of all of God's power and mercy and grace working on our behalf. In Mark 11, Jesus says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and will not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatever he says. So we have power in our words. Those are two examples of reaping the consequences of what we speak. (laughs) And I'm going to tell on myself and give you another personal example. I love doing these because God makes me say them. Ah. Anyway, many years ago, when I was first walking, learning how to walk in my salvation, I used to exaggerate when I was talking. Everything was more, bigger, larger in number, more dramatic. And there was a term that we used to use to describe this kind of talk, and it was we were said to be speaking evangelistically, stretching the truth. And when the Lord got a hold of my attention about this, I had to spend a lot of time saying, oh, whoops, wait a minute, that's not quite right. And then I had to reword what I was saying to reflect the truth. It took me about six months of having to correct myself all the time, but I did learn to stop exaggerating. The consequences of my exaggeration was that I had to admit it and change the behavior immediately even if it made me look foolish in the eyes of the people that I was speaking to. There's a scripture that really helps me with this, though, and it's Psalm 141, verse verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. That's what that divot is there for. Put your finger there. Keep Keep a guard over my mouth, Lord. Help me. Keep watch at the door of my lips. And secondly, our words affect the rest of the hearers, all of them. And who has the biggest ears? Our kids, our children, our grandchildren, the children of our neighbors, our nieces and nephews, strangers' kids at the mall or at the restaurant. So we need to guard the way we speak for their sakes. And the first and foremost way to guard them is to speak to them of Jesus. Speak to them of truth. Speak to them of grace and mercy. In Proverbs 22, it says this, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. But how many of you know that that's a two-way street? If we train them up with grace, mercy, and truth, they will live that way. If we train them with negatives, they will live that way too. Why do you think the enemy is after the kids now? That scripture is a fundamental truth. It's not just a nice saying for us to nod our head to and say, oh, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. And if you look at past disastrous political regimes, they all used some form of child training in the ways of terrorism. 
and the worldly ways that are creeping into our children's education systems are using the same tactics today. So we need to guard our words, as our base scripture from James says. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get a little political here, so bear with me. This verse also means that we guard what our kids are hearing in schools, in kids' clubs, even in church. We are the guardians of the future generations, and it is our responsibility to maintain godly standards for what our children hear and learn, not the government's. We need to guard the words that they hear from as many sources as we can. And <laughs> another telling on myself story. When Patrick was in first or second grade, he brought home a storybook called Where the Wild Things Are by Morris Sendak. Have you, do you, have you heard of that? Yeah. I really tried to monitor the things that he was exposed to, and when I read that book, I got very upset. You know that book, and you know the story behind it? It's a story of a child who learns to embrace all the wildness in his heart. Well, I got all head up, <laughs> and I called the school, and I made a real nuisance of myself. I told the teacher that I did not want my child reading that garbage, that you don't teach a child to embrace his demons, but to cast them out in the name of Jesus. Needless to say, I was not a very popular mom at that school after that. <laughs> the point I want to make is, though, we need to take a stand. Upset the apple cart if we have to, but do take charge of what our children are learning they are our children, and ultimately, we are responsible for what and how they learn. Amen? All right. The second thing that we want to consider about our true spirituality is making a difference for the orphans. There's a, there's a worldwide pandemic going on all across the globe, a pandemic of orphaned children. Although the UNICEF organization estimates the orphan population at 150 million kids, other sources say that there are over 200 million parentless children in the world. It's almost impossible to determine the correct number of orphans, as many of these are living in countries where they don't have those statistics available. Now, to give you some perspective on those numbers, the 2020 census for the United Kingdom indicates that this country has 68 million people. The orphan count worldwide then is nearly three times the population of this country. That's sad. And oftentimes that orphan status is one-sided. Either a mother or a father is absent, but the other one's still there. This still leaves the children at risk of being targeted by the enemy of their souls. It takes both parents to raise a well-rounded and grounded child. But the good news, <laughs> praise God, is that if either one or even both parents are absent, God our Father has promised not to leave the children, or even us adults, as orphans. Now another focus of this point is to beware of an orphan spirit to work with children who actually are orphans, but also to deal with that orphan spirit and work towards getting the ones afflicted with that thing to get delivered and into a parent-child relationship with God. It's like that song from the, from the song that we sing, This is Amazing Grace. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan 
a son and daughter, the king of glory, the king above all kings. So let's take a moment to look at what an orphan spirit actually is. An orphan spirit attaches itself to a person who has experienced extreme rejection in their lives. It creates separation, worry, anxiety, and fear. And once this spirit enters into a person, it becomes a stronghold in their mind and remains there until a new foundational truth based on the word of God is formed in them. And the foundational truth is that God has not rejected them, that Father God has not abandoned them, that they are accepted, loved, nurtured, and protected. Now, where do you think that that spirit originated? Anybody? Where did that orphan spirit come from? From the enemy, of course. Satan rejected God, but he convinced one-third of the heavenly host that God had rejected them. Separation, worry, anxiety, and fear, those are the hallmarks of that orphan spirit. So part of our true, pure spirituality is to counter all those things, bringing inclusion, assurance, peace, and courage to the lives of orphan children and adults who are under the influence of that spirit. I know of somebody who adopted a baby, and they were careful to always let the child know of his chosen status, to make this child understand that he was very special, wanted, and loved. And as he grew, he heard the whispers in his spirit that he was just a backseat accident and never really wanted. And he held that belief for many years until one day he he spoke that thing out into the open. And his adoptive mother, being a forceful woman of God, told him in no uncertain terms that he was always wanted from the time before she even knew anything about how babies came into the world. She had prayed for a child just like him earnestly prayed before the Lord, and he was the answer to that prayer. And she said to him, now you can go on believing the lie that you weren't wanted, or you can accept the fact that you are a precious gift from God, always wanted, always loved, and always in the heart of both your father and me, and most importantly, always in the heart of God, who is father to us all. That's how you combat that orphan spirit. You continue to speak the truth to them as long as that spirit keeps whispering lies to them. Remember that one of our foundational scriptures as believers is to take every thought captive and cast down every evil imagination and make your thoughts line up with the anointing. So that's how we combat that orphan spirit. The third thing in our Base scripture is to help the widows. How many of you realize that it's only been in the last 150 years or so that widows have not been shunned or sidelined? In some cases throughout the world, when a woman became a widow, she was expected to throw herself on the funeral pyre of her husband so that she would die at the same time that he did. And this was due to the laws of inheritance so as to ensure that whatever inheritance a man was to receive or entitled to or would leave behind would not be placed in the hands of another man's bloodline 
if the widow remarried. Remember the story of Ruth and Naomi? They were both widows in the land. Naomi was past the age when she would be considered marriage material, but Ruth was prime goods. And part of her story is dealing with the kinsman and redeemer. Upon the death of her husband, the nearest male relative of his would have first refusal in what happened to Ruth next. He was the kinsman. And then we look at the word redeemer, and that's not kind of like what we're talking about. Ooh, we have a flying, hello, gift, guest in the building. The term redeemer, redeemer was not so much as what we think of today as redeeming coupons, but much more powerful as it related to the redeeming the widow from the life of extreme poverty as she was not allowed to own property in her own name. Yeah, there were some exceptions, but as a rule, it was not permitted. So in Ruth's case, the kinsman redeemer situation allowed Boaz to purchase the right of becoming her husband, and through that union, the bloodline was established that would eventually produce the savior of our souls. So as James was writing this epistle at the beginning of the first century, just after Jesus was among men, it was an imperative injunction that he was laying down. Help the widows. Keep them out of poverty. Keep them from being shunned and lost. And how poignant would that have been for James if we accept the premise that he might have been Jesus' own half-brother and Mary, the mother of him and Jesus, and the widow of Joseph. Help the widows, James says. He could have been talking about Mary. And as a side note, I've always wondered if the story that Jesus told of the widow's might was Jesus telling about Mary and her offering in the temple. So how do we relate that to our situations today? <clears throat> Excuse me. Most people these days have some kind of pension or social security benefits or life insurance to keep from being cast into abject poverty when a spouse dies. But what about the ones that don't have that safety net? How many of you know at least of one widow? She doesn't even have to be elderly. And let's not forget men in this category as well. How many of them have lost their life partners? Part of our pure spirituality is to look after them. Maybe not financially in this day and age, but how about in their loneliness? How about in their heartache? How about in their home situations? Can we offer a helping hand with household chores or grocery shopping or running errands or taking them to the doctor's office or whatever? <clears throat> and of course, the best part of this taking care of the widows is to help them to remember their loved one. If you've known the departed person, do speak of your memories of them. To know that the one who is not there is remembered is a blessing to the one left behind. In Proverbs 10:7, it says, the memory of the just is blessed. And if we want our relationship with Father God to be spiritually pure, then we need to see if there's something lacking in this area in our lives. How can we step up our response to this scripture in our daily existence? How many of you do know a widow? Yeah. We all know somebody who's lost somebody. And it doesn't have to be just a husband and wife. It can be anybody that they have lost that they loved. 
And the last injunction in our foundational scripture is to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. Wow, is that a loaded directive? That one, mercy. Let's also look at Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, he says, All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any of them. And in the 10th chapter of Corinthians, he also says this, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify me. So we need to be careful. What are some of the world's values that we need to be careful to avoid? Anybody have an idea? What's some of the world's values that we need to avoid? Nobody knows? <laughs> okay. Well, then let me give you some things. The love of money. Scripture tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. And how many of us know that we don't necessarily have to possess lots of money to fall into that trap? If we are jealous over those who do have money, that shows our infatuation with the concept of riches. And that will lead us into all sorts of mischief. How about following fashion trends? What if the fashion of the day is going topless at the beach? Or wearing clothes that are way too revealing? Now, I'm not advocating that we walk around in burlap bags. I don't think I could find one big enough for me anyway. But as in all things, be sensible. Okay? How about political correctness? Have you heard the, the term virtue signaling? Yeah? Okay. What do you think of when you hear that term? Usually when we hear the word virtue, we think of something holy or pure or righteous. But do we even know what virtue signaling is? This is what the online dictionary says. It's the public expression of opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or social conscience or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. But it's derogatory in nature. It's noticeable how often virtue signaling consists of saying that you hate things. That's not a virtue to signal to anybody. I hate this, that, or the other, and I'm virtue signaling my righteousness in the world. That's baloney. Excuse me. It's a good sound bite, but it's usually very hollow in context. Whatever the prevailing idea is, you climb on the bandwagon and you voice your position, aligning yourself with it, regardless of the biblical stance on that position. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we shall no longer be children carried about by the waves and blown about by every shifting wind of the teaching of deceitful people who lead others into error by the tricks they invent. Instead, by speaking the truth in a spirit of love, we must grow up in every way to Christ who is the head. That's the good news version. What about idols? Teen idols and movie idols? Icons of other God worship? Do we need to do a little house cleaning? Do we need to look at our decorations like Julie spoke of a few weeks ago? Do they portray other gods? Even if we don't believe in them as a God, 
and think they're just pretty decorations, who, coming into our lives, will see something that says otherwise to them. We need to be careful of those things. How about the TV programs that we watch? When I first came over here, I wanted to see how people actually talked with one another. So I started with Corey and Emmerdale and EastEnders. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, I got hooked. Well, as the years went by and the storylines got much more and more bizarre, I had to stop them. I just, I just, there was just too much of the world's values creeping in with murders and, and lying and cheating and stealing and, and trans people and blah, 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 blah. I had, I, just, I, I had to stop them. They just made me sick. And here's another one of the world's values that we need to think about. Politics. Maybe. But remember that it was godly men and women working in the not-too-distant past that helped stop slavery. They stopped child labor abuses. They stopped the workhouses abuse. They made orphanages less like prisons, not to mention actual prison reforms, all of which had political underpinnings but were addressed by people of the Spirit. Then if we look to Scripture... There was Joseph and Moses who were highly positioned in the Egyptian governments of their time. And Daniel and Isaiah and Samson, all these people were involved with the government. And Peter and James and Paul, all who addressed the government leaders of their day. So do we learn from them or do we dismiss those saints as irrelevant? And remember the aspects of the anointing too to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to appoint unto them in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for their mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, And all of this is to be able to call them trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he would be glorified. If we walk in these things as well as the things listed in our base scripture, then we will experience true, pure spirituality. Now, I'm not preaching a message of works. Don't get me wrong here. But one of opportunity. A message of awareness Let's not be a little cliquish, bless me and mine club. Let's not be cisterns of stagnant pond scum, but let us become, as our name suggests, a river, a fresh, life-giving blessing to all those around about us. Let's refresh ourselves about the scripture that we're using today. It's James 1, verses 26 and 27. If someone believes they have a relationship with God but fails to guard his words, then his heart is drifting away and his religion is shallow and empty. True spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God is to make a difference in the lives of the orphans and widows in their troubles and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. So as we go about our lives this week, let's guard our words See where we can make a difference for orphans and widows and refuse the world's corrupt values 
whatever it finds, whatever you find that makes your spirit uncomfortable. Amen? All right, stand up on your feet. I want to pray for you. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We, Father, we thank you that we now know what true spirituality consists of. And, Father, I ask that you help each and every one of us find a place this week where we can demonstrate that we know how to walk in true spirituality. If it's donating to a widows and orphans thing, let's let's do it. Father, and if it's teaching our children not to listen to the corrupt values of the world, let's do that as well. Father, I ask blessing. I ask the Holy Spirit to come and anoint these words and bring truth to our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.